So last week we said the, uh, the, the church on purpose rather than by accident. The church with a mission rather than meanderings. The church with vision, not confusion. Last week, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we learned from the new community gathering there, from their situation, we learned for ours today what I believe is the mission statement of the Christian church, although there is no church yet in Acts chapter 1. I believe this is the mission statement. When Jesus said to the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. You will be my witnesses telling people everywhere, in Jerusalem, through Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The church exists to think and speak and behave well on behalf of God. That's what we do as Christians. I like the way Walter Brueggemann says it when he says, the church's mission really is to form its own truth and reconciliation commission on behalf of God that God is a God of repentance and forgiveness and has a, a new way of living that matters, which we sang earlier today, because he lives. It makes a difference. This is the mission of the Christian church. Now, mission statements have been around for a long time. Corporations, businesses, large and small. Families make mission statements. Even individuals can compose a mission statement. Most of our kids in the academy... Before they graduate, at some point, they'll be asked to write their own personal mission statement, something we certainly never did when I was in high school. But they may do it before they graduate. Mission statements have been around for a long time. It was last week when I was looking through paperwork, government paperwork, in preparation for April 15. You haven't forgotten. That the IRS has a mission statement as well. Did you know that? The mission statement of the IRS is to provide America's taxpayers top quality service by helping them blah, 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 blah. That's right about where I lost it. They want to help us. (laughs) I had a little cry out in my office. You want to help? Why don't you compose a one-page tax return? That would help. Yeah, he said amen. I thought I was cynical. I haven't even read you the rest of the mission statement. I'm not even going to read it, but I thought I was cynical. And then I told Pastor Isaac last Sabbath, you know, the IRS has a mission statement. And he said, yeah, what's that, to make my life miserable? (laughs) They've been around for a long time, mission statements. Critics of statements like this say they're, they're just things that are created to frame and hang on walls to make corporate executives feel good about themselves. So they can puff up and feel proud. It was this kind of a critic the animator who's responsible for the Dilbert cartoon strip. It was a critic like this who designed a website that has a mission statement generator. You just push a button. They'll take the nouns, adjectives, adverbs, prepositions, uh, all, all the words, and they'll just arrange them in a fashion and spit you out a mission statement. You press the button, and, and a, a statement will come out that reads like this. It is our mission to professionally supply high-payoff leadership skills to allow us to conveniently customize world-class intellectual capital because that is what the customer expects. But if you don't like that mission statement, if you would like to rearrange the adverbs and the nouns and the prepositions, just push a button and you'll get, we quickly negotiate error-free benefits while continuing to continually provide access to cutting-edge data to exceed customer expectations. And there's a little man who sits on the website in a chair that says, blah, 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 blah. 
I told you last week that we've been doing some mission and visioning work here at the church, and by far out of all of the mission statements that I've read in the last few months, my favorite comes from an amateur who writes the following words, our mission is to be the largest human trap built by a mouse. What do you think that's the mission statement for? And you thought it was just the happiest place on earth. No, it's the largest human trap built by a mouse. Church exists to be witnesses to God's goodness. That's where we left it last week in Acts chapter 1. Now, I want you to know that the church board this week has confirmed some of the first steps of the committee that's doing the visioning work. That committee who's taken seriously not only Acts 1, but several other places in the Bible. And this week we approved a mission statement that reads, Loving God and loving people. I was hoping somebody would say amen because they were so quiet first service. And this is the image of the new church directory. You are going to get a church directory. It is coming. Loving God, loving people. If you look on your bulletin, this is simply rephrasing what we already know. On the bottom of your bulletin, the back page, there's a mission statement there. On the front page, there are two taglines of the mission statement stated in other shorter ways. What we're suggesting now, loving God, loving people, is another way of saying about the same thing, just a little shorter and a little crisper. And it comes not only from Acts 1-8 and from the two great commandments and from the gospel commission every time it's given, but also from Jesus' prayer in John for his disciples before he leaves. And you may notice, as some observed at board meeting, loving God, loving people can be read a couple of different ways. And I like that about it. You can read that as an adjective about God, a loving God and a loving people, or, or not. It's a little ambiguous. Where we left the disciples last week, they were just getting uh, unveiling of this kind of a mission. Disciples who are here to witness to God in the world. Jesus has left the earth now, and they're on their way from Mount Olive back to Jerusalem, Acts 1, verse 12. The apostles returned to Jerusalem from Mount of Olives, a distance of half a mile. Your Bible might read a Sabbath day's journey. When they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. Here are the names of those who were present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas, son of James. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. The Mount of Olives is a significant location for the disciples. I wonder what it was like for them to walk away from that precious place where they'd met often with Jesus, where Jesus was the night he was arrested. I wonder what it's like to leave the Mount of Olives and head back to Jerusalem, what their conversation was that night. Mount of Olives, that's where Zacharias said the Lord would bring about an end to all of this. The disciples who thought maybe they'd march to battle, now they're being sent to sit in silence and wait for some kind of a spiritual blessing. They go to Jerusalem to a room. Maybe it's the same room where they shared the Last Supper with Jesus before his arrest. The Bible says they were constantly united, and most of our translations edge a little bit here. 
The manuscripts that lay behind Acts of the Apostles are very interesting, two main manuscripts. And right here, your Bible may read something more like the New International Version, which says, they all join together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary. Or your Bible may read something more like, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women. It's significant and unique to Acts, that little word, they moved in one accord, they proceeded in one accord, and it's going to come up again, let's watch for it, shall we, as a marker in the book of Acts. In one accord, it's only used 12 times in the New Testament, 11 of those times are right here in Acts of the Apostle. It means they move with one passion, with one idea, with one commitment, in unison, they're moving in Acts. One of the first activities they take up, now that they're of one accord, is to pray. They are in one accord in prayer and supplication. I don't know if we should think of this as Jewish prayer. Are they being good Jews and and doing their ritual prayer three times a day? Are they being good Jews just reciting out loud, memorized prayers? Are they doing what they would do if they could go to the temple, but they don't have a temple now at the time of of, of the later writing. Do, are, so now the house, their homes, that's becoming the location where they pray together. Is that what's happening in our text this morning? Sh- they're praying in one accord. Does it mean they're all praying for the same thing? They're united in what they're praying for. They're asking for the same thing. They're praying in a united fashion. Is it that they've prayed and now that's what leads them to do what they do next? Acts chapter 1 verse 15 They take up their first item of business. During this time, when about 120 believers were together in one place, Peter stood up and addressed them. They're about to elect a new disciple, someone to take that 12th slot. And from here on out, Peter's going to stand up a lot and talk. We'll see this and read this again. In fact, about 30% of the book of Acts is speeches and sermons. It's just a whole lot of sermons. Uh, Last week when Don Roth was in church, he's been absent, our friend Don, because he's healing from his surgery, but he was able to be here last week, and he said to me, well, pastor, it's okay. While I've been gone, I've listened to five sermons on Sabbath. You and four other preachers. I thought, can this be good for us? Who can listen to five sermons on one Sabbath? That's Acts of Apostle. There's just speeches and sermon and Peter continually standing up to say something. Here Peter stands up and I won't read verse 16 to 20, but he gives an explanation of Judas who led Jesus to an arrest, who had a piece of land and he's, he's now gone from them and they need to select someone to fill Judas's place. I'm just curious if anyone in the crowd wanted to say, Peter, sit down, we're supposed to wait for the promise of something. <laughs> But nobody interrupts Peter, and and he continues on. Verse 21. We must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord, from the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken up from us. Whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they all prayed. O Lord, you know every heart. Show us which of these men you have chosen. 
chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in this ministry, for he has deserted us and gone where he belongs, with the other gone where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other eleven. It's clear from the beginning a few things. They want to elect someone who's been with Jesus from the beginning until the end of Jesus' ministry when he's left the earth, which, by the way, will soon be an impossible requirement. There really won't be anybody left who's been with them from the beginning till when Jesus left. If Paul, the Apostle Paul, the greatest apostle the, the Christian church knows, were with them in the circle that morning, he wouldn't qualify to, for these requirements. That's interesting to me. It's clear that the group worked in a very inclusive, kind of a non-hierarchical way. Peter could have just stood up and said, I just announced Matthias is going to be the next one. But the people prayed. The people put the names forward. The people together cast lots in a very inclusive kind of fashion. And the text says there were even women in the room when this happened. Oh, I just love when the Bible helps us with our contemporary challenges. If we just read it, maybe we wouldn't be so troubled. The group selected the candidate The group is working together. It's also interesting to me that while Judas is gone, somehow Peter, the one who betrayed Jesus, is redeemable. He is taking this leadership role in the community. Some folks wonder about the casting of lots in this Bible passage that here we see the disciples slipping back into their old habits if they really trusted that God was leaving, if they really believed in their prayers, if they had faith, they wouldn't engage in such an action. Some people say it's just superstitious. What are they doing? And for the apostles, now that word gets interchanged, disciples and apostles, but from here out mostly we'll use apostles, the ones being sent out. For the apostles... Writing the name of these two candidates on stone and dropping them in a jar and shaking them around until one stone pops out, that is precisely how the divine will is known. You read it in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, in 1 Samuel, several, several places. It isn't an act of superstition. It's actually a, a great act of faith for them, although we don't read it again in the New Testament The disciples proceed, and Matthias' name comes out of the jar, and he's now an apostle, and the circle of twelve is finally complete. Again, the nation of Israel is represented, and we never hear from Matthias again. Why did we have to go through such a careful procedure if we weren't going to hear from Matthias? If he isn't going to make a contribution, you won't find him in the Acts story. Here we find the disciples in between the presence of Jesus. Jesus is gone. The Holy Spirit hasn't come. That's next week. And in this in-between time, supposedly in the absence, they take their first action of electing someone. Can you even do that if the power's not with you yet? Are you in trouble? Did they, are they out of protocol here? Were they thinking that their prayer led them to this, that there really is some presence with them now? Did they just get creative? Are they bored? What are they doing in that upper room, going on with business? They were told two things, weren't they? Wait, and you will be given a gift or a promise. Something is coming to you. What are they doing in the upper room? There are all the possible answers, and the libraries are full of hypotheses of why and what and how. Of all the possible answers, I'll take mine from the author of Acts. 
if it's Luke. Luke never comments again on what took place in the upper room. Doesn't say if it was right. Doesn't say if it was wrong. Only that Matthias slips into silence. By the way, so do most of all the other apostles. Only a couple of them are we going to hear from. It doesn't seem to be a problem for Luke. What, however, these humans carried on. What is clear is that they're going to get new companions and new perspectives, new faces along the way, because only two of these men are really going to make a contribution now over these next 28 chapters. And it occurs to me that no matter what humans do when they're gathered together, even with their prayer and their careful ritual, if for some reason it wasn't right, if for some reason they had made a mistake... That matters less to God. God is able to move ahead with whatever humans offer and accomplish God's purposes. And I think the book of Acts will show us it's less about a group of people who are so transformed that the church grows and it's more about a God who is so capable that whatever the humans offer, God's agenda will move forward. That's the book of Acts. Was God in the procedure in the upper room? Is God in our procedures? Has God been in our meetings the last few months as we've worked on our visioning plan? Has God been with us the last five years and ten years as we've thought about our future as a church? Is God blessing our plans? Is God in what we're doing? These are questions churches ask. Might be more effective to ask, are we in God's plan? Are we in step with what God is already doing? Have we identified God's agendas and sort of pulled ourselves in line with where we see God in our world, what God is doing, what the kingdom priorities ought to be? This is what a people of one accord do. And I believe this is what we pray for, to come in alignment with what God is already doing in the world. This idea of prayer being the first activity that the gathered group does together. Watch for this now. Prayer will be a major theme as we spend these next seven weeks together. We'll come up to it again and again and again. But we aren't going to run into a fully developed prayer theology. We're not going to run into an explanation of what prayer is and how prayer works and, and all the specifics and the mechanics of what an effective prayer is like. What we're going to see are praying people. I get a little irritable when I come across a book. Pastor Dustin shared a book with me a few months ago, wondered if I thought it would be a good book on prayer. He was looking at it. I looked at it. I get a little irritable when I see these books on, you know, 25 strategic steps for targeted prayer to get the results you want. This sort of sounds like Weight Watchers, right? I get a little irritable when we crank out these formulas for how to get God to do what we want God to do. Even growing up in the church, I guess I'm not a young adult anymore. Isaac, I'll have to come to grips with this, but I keep thinking I'm one of the young ones. I'm not, I don't think that's the case. Gr- growing up in the church, I've, I get, have gotten a little irritable and questioning the way we do prayer together. How we use prayer in a rather patronizing way sometimes. How just one example, you know, a few months ago when we elected our union president here, in our union, Pacific Union, 
And many people are gathered in the room that day, 40 or 50 people, and 19 resumes are on the table, and 19 names are on the grease board, and these names have been known for a while. Guess what? People have been praying since they knew the previous president was resigning. People have been on this task for a long time. God's been on the job a long time, and we gather in the room, and here are the 19 names, and they follow the procedure just like the book of Acts. Here are the names. Now let's pause and pray. Oh, God, you know which one. Show us. And then we cast lots, and, you know, half of the, 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 the list is reduced by half. And then we pray the same thing. And I get just a little irritable. I, I want to say, but I don't. I'm quiet. I, I want to say, are, you, are some of you going to change your votes after this prayer? Are you really going to change your mind? Is, what's the prayer going to do to God? What's the prayer going to do to us? Why are we pausing to pray right now? God's been on the task from the very beginning. And I find myself getting a little irritable sometimes. The manipulative way the community engages prayer. As if the more of us are on it frequently and often, we will affect something God already wants to do. I don't know the last time you went into the children's division and just eavesdropped on a child's prayer, but I invite you to try it again. If you haven't been in there, listen to a prayer of a child where the language is simple and spontaneous and honest and thoroughly comprehensive. They pray for everything, those children. Listen to the prayer of a child. And then maybe it helps us, while we're looking at prayer in Acts, to go back and look at prayer in Luke. Remember last week I said that's the first volume of whatever's happening in Acts. Because it is in the Gospel of Luke that the disciples come to Jesus and say, teach us how to pray. And Jesus does a brand new thing for a group of Jews. He says, you pray like this. Our Father. Our Abba. That is as far from a formalized, memorized prayer as any of these disciples have been about. And then Jesus prays for very basic, practical things. We will not learn in the book of Acts the mystery of prayer. We will not come to a thorough understanding of what prayer is and what prayer accomplishes. But we get a little clue when Peter prays and to elect Matthias, and and Peter uses that line, O God, knower of our hearts. That also reflects what Jesus taught the disciples to pray in a very intimate fashion. God already knows what's on the human heart. Like Psalms 139, you know what I'm going to say before I even say it, Lord. Like uh, Psalms 139.7, I can never escape from your spirit. I could never get away from your presence. You know how the passage goes. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the bottom, you're there. Everywhere I go, I'm not going to speak a new thought God hasn't already heard. I'm not going to come up with a new emotion or response or criteria God doesn't already know about. When Peter uses that language in his prayer, Oh God, knower of our hearts, something happens to the people. And if you don't use that kind of language in your prayer, I invite you to think about that. Wherever you are in your own experience and where we are in a church as a praying church, when people of one accord pause and pray in this fashion, something happens. We get a perspective, like we mentioned last week, of how human we are and how totally divine God is. Oh God, knower of our hearts, 
The phrase immediately says, oh, goodness, I'm human and I can't do anything about it. Oh, my goodness, you are God. And we're not changing that. Henry Nguyen is a little more poetic when he says what prayer does for him is, is say very clearly, I am God and you are not. That is what prayer does. And from there then, I believe the bottom line of prayer is to open our minds and continue to reveal to us who this God is. That has far less to do with us and our needs and our concerns and everything to do with God. There's a Cambridge University professor by the name of David Ford who was asked once, who asked, uh, once interviewed a Catholic priest Catholic priest been hearing confessionals for 20 years, and he asked the Catholic priest, after everything you've heard in the last 20 years, what is the most common problem that you've heard in your confessionals? The priest was able to respond without hesitation. Oh, that's easy. God. God is the most common problem, for there are very few people who behave as if God is a God of love and forgiveness and gentleness and compassion. They see God as someone they must cower before when they come to prayer. Very much like a little patient up at the medical center a while ago, I went to visit one of our church members, and, and I asked at the appropriate time, would it be meaningful if we prayed together? And the church member said yes, and I, I heard a little voice from behind the curtain that was pulled, could you pray for me too, came the voice. And I answered back, yes, absolutely. Can I pull the curtain? Would you like to join us? And the voice came back, oh, no, 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 no. I thought maybe the the man was uncomfortable, was not covered. No, 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 no. I, I could never pray. No, you handle it for me. The people of one accord in the book of Acts are still getting to know their God. And in prayer, that happens. The witness is of a good God who forgives and reconciles and redeems and offers hope. It is in the name of that God and for the purposes of that God that we pray. May we be the praying congregation in one accord who, when we pray together, we get a clearer picture of this God and may the church grow. Amen.